You're listening to That'll Preach, a weekly podcast on the Four Oaks Midtown podcast. I'm just going to go with it. <laughs> just keep going. Yeah, I know. We're still rolling. We are a weekly <clears throat> show on the Four Oaks Midtown podcast. We're also I'm, a Midtown podcast. We're also a weekly podcast on the Midtown podcast. That's true. Yeah. But the <laughs> thing you need to remember is I'm Brian. I'm joined with Paul. Yes. And we're going to be continuing our series on mere Christianity, and talking about C.S. Lewis. It's almost midnight. Yep. So this is when the mental fires are extinguished. Are extinguished. Oh, okay. Okay. Probably at the same time. <laughs> but uh, we got a great show. <clears throat> yes, we do. But uh, before we do that, we got a hot take. Lay it so on I, me. It's my turn to do the hot take. And this is an appropriate, in my opinion, hot take, considering who we're talking about. C.S. Lewis. Go for it. Chronicles of Narnia mm-hmm. is overrated. Ooh. Possibly even boring at times. <laughs> you can't say that. Well. Have you read them? Yeah, I tried. Got I, as far as, I read, I got as far as a boy and his horse or horse's boy or whatever. Yeah, yeah. That's the worst one though. Some of the stuff <clears> I'm just like, there's not a lot's happening. You know, Tolkien had the same criticism. Look at that. Yeah. What did he say? He thought it was too allegorical and over the top and just not believable. It was not good fiction. It wasn't a good story. Yeah. Yeah, well... It's a children's story. If you keep that in mind, it puts it in perspective. I just thought <clears throat> it was hard to follow the plot, honestly. What? It's yeah. so <laughs> I don't know. I'm just like, who are these characters again? I just... But you, I need it simple. But you follow Lord of the Rings. And that's like well, I've never 400 read the books. times... I mean, I read the books a long time ago, but that and was difficult. You watched, we watched The Fellowship last night. We did. For the first time, Brian. We did. Had a it. bunch of people over and we <clears> watched <throat> the extended version. It was great. It was like 18 hours. Oh my gosh. But you were able to follow that plot line. Oh, yeah. yeah. So Narnia but, is like a tenth of that. It's so simple. I don't know. It's just. When did you read it? How old were you? I read Two. it within the last year. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That is strange. I just, I think the thing is, I, I just couldn't keep my <clears throat> attention. So I just kept like. Okay. That's different from saying. Also, I kind of read it like nonfiction. I'm just trying to like, what's the point of this? I'm just like blasting through pages. It's hard for me to slow down to read fiction. That is, that's, that's another part of it point that uh, Tolkien brought up. He's like, people, when they read Narnia, all they're doing is looking for the allegory. They're like, Ooh, what does this mean? What does this mean? They're always Look looking for the theology. So me and J.R.R. <clears throat> Tolkien himself. Are You're like the same person. The same person. That's interesting. Have you seen the movies though? Yeah, I saw Prince Caspian, I think. Also quite boring. Uh, the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe is actually pretty good as a movie. Uh, you know what I think it is? I think it's just childhood nostalgia, you know? And maybe people kind of remember it because <sighs> it was, it captivated them when they were child, ignorant children. <laughs> But that is, there's so much interesting philosophy, so many good moral lessons. I much prefer C.S. Lewis's nonfiction to his fiction. I read the Space Trilogy too, could not follow it. Very confusing. (laughs) Maybe you're just not a fantasy guy. Maybe, maybe that's what it is. But you like Lord of the Rings. I like the movies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've I've seen them all. Yeah, yeah. But I that didn't like Lord of the Rings till the Two Towers when they had that big battle. And then I was right, like, right. Oh, I can get behind this. But when I, fr- when I first saw Fellowship of the Ring, I'm like, this is so 
boring. This is taking forever. And then it, it had no payoff. And I was like, this is just the first part of three movies. Like, are you kidding me? You just sound like a product of this generation. It's true. Low attention span, instant gratification, soundbite, Everything fiction. that C.S. Lewis would hate. Yeah. But that J.R. Tolkien would approve of. Maybe. Interesting. I didn't know you felt that way. All oh, right. There that, you go. Uh, changes our friendship slightly. That's fine. You're leaving anyways. Oh, no. That's so sad. We are going <clears> to <throat> jump into, we're in book four of Your Christianity. Mm -hmm. Your Christianity is basically a series of radio talks that C.S. Lewis gave. Yep. During World War II that a couple decades later he he rewrote and reformatted to be published. Yep. And he's really examining what Christianity is all about. And mm -hmm. what when we were talking about this off air, <laughs> and uh, one of the things that we talked about was how C.S. Lewis has such a grasp of the Christian tradition, mm -hmm. of classic Christian theology. He's so orthodox. God and yeah. the Trinity. He's very orthodox. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and I didn't really come to appreciate that until I started to learn more about, you know, what the church fathers said about the Trinity and yeah. how, how the Trinity developed and the ideas of the Trinity were clarified over time. And going back, you're like, man, this was in C.S. Lewis. Yeah. And I read this as a new Christian and I had no idea the deep theology I was reading and I have a deeper appreciation mm. for it now. And so it's really cool coming to uh, chapter two of book four. Yeah. Or part two of book four, however you want to say, when he talks about the Trinity, the or Trinity. as he titles it, the three personal God. Yeah. And uh, this is something that Lewis not only talks about theoretically, but he addresses practically. How does mm -hmm. this affect our Christian lives? But let, let, let's let's talk more about the, I hate to say abstract, but more of the big picture on what he's talking about with the Trinity. What yeah. are some of the things that he's bringing up? Well, so he starts off by saying that a lot of people tend to think like God can't be personal because God is just bigger. God is beyond the person. And so he's like, well, people gravitate towards the Near Eastern religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, and there they have a non-personal God. And people are attracted to that. They go, aha, here you've got like, there's no way you can confine all of deity into a person. So they eliminate personhood from God. He's like, that's one route that you can go. But Christianity, he says, goes the correct route, which is to say, you're right, that God can't be like totally enveloped in one person. God is super personal is what Lewis calls him. Like he is, he's more than one person simultaneously. So rather than eradicating personhood from God and saying God is just this amorphous force in the world, God is, he's, he's affirming something good about that modern intuition that says God can't just be personal, right? God has to be something else besides personal. And so he says, that's right, but the, the correct way to go there, the right way that we want to go is to say that God is beyond one person. He's super personal. He's simultaneously more than one person at the same time. So we retain like the relational aspect that God can have with his creatures, but still say that God is bigger than one person. He's not bounded by just one single personality. But he's still one person. Or, he's, I'm sorry. He's, he's one, one being. One being. Brian three is persons. a heretic. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yes. we, we, he actually, I think this is helpful what he does is he, he contrasts it. And like you were saying, like, okay, mm -hmm. well, okay, we want to say that he's personal, but he's right. got to be more than that. He's not just, you know, like any other person. Mm -hmm. 
but he also contrasts it with with people saying, okay, well, um, you know, people are often what what they have is effectively an impersonal god, just right. some kind of force mm-hmm. or whatever. Yep. Or he talks about, you know, God is like, you know, sort of that uh, pantheistic God yeah. is in everything, mm-hmm. and and we're trying to be one with God. And he makes this interesting observation where he says he, he likens that view, kind of like the Pocahontas, you know, view God the gods in the, the trees. Yeah. And <laughs> um, that that means that we can't have a relationship with God. We're, we're yeah. our, our goal is to become one with God. Mm-hmm. And he says it's like a drop of water slipping into the sea. Yeah. Right. And some mm-hmm. people will say that, like, I just want to be one with the universe. Right. Right. But he, he makes this observation where if that's what happens, then you lose your identity. Yeah. You cease to be you. Mm-hmm. Right. You, you just become part of God. Yeah. Right. And so he says, so that's almost like personal to the max to where you're absorbed. And he says, well, there has to be a distinction, a separateness without losing the personality that, sorry, not personality, but the how personal can, how relation. How can you remain you even right. when you are part of God? Right. Like when you're united right. to God. Right. That, that, that's the central exactly. puzzle. Yeah. And, uh, and he says this, it's only Christian to have an idea of how human souls can be taken into the life of God and yet remain themselves. And then he says this, in fact, be very much more themselves than they were before. Mm-hmm. So there, there's an added part where yeah. you actually become more of the individual God created you to be when you are in union with him. Yeah, yeah. So that that's, and that's the, he says, I warned you that theology is practical. <laughs> the whole purpose for which we exist is to be thus taken into the life of God. Right. Right. So, you know. It's, Let's it's, just break that down a little yeah. bit for like, for the, so you've got, basically this idea from Lewis is scripture talks about being united to Christ. Right. Like our life is hidden with Christ in God. Right. That idea there, how do you make sense of that? So, so on the one hand, you can have this, like, you know, the, the sort of bizarre new age, you're like, oh, I just want to be one with the universe. And there, the unification between you and the deity. Jesus swallows you up. Yeah. You're no longer yourself. There's no longer you. You're just Jesus. Exactly. Right. But the Christian view is you can retain your your identity right. and your individual soul, in a sense, even when you're united with God. Right. And so the, the Christian view of the Trinity allows that. And it's only if you have a Trinity can you make sense of that. I wonder if there's something with like a familial relation, like yeah. um, you and your father, your earthly father are distinct. Mm-hmm. And yet the fact that you're part of his household and were raised by him and came from him, uh, there's still a... You're, 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 but you're united to him by the bond of family. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and that unity is transformative and forms you. So you're, in some ways, you become like your father because he raised you, and yet you're distinct from him. Now, that's not a perfect analogy yeah. with with Christianity, but, but but you know, we are talked about being adopted mm-hmm. sons of God. Yeah. And so we enter into God's family and we become shaped into God-like people and in the sense of yeah, uh, be holy as I am holy. Right, right. Right. Um, and then he, and he, then he uses it. I think this is kind of, I've heard this analogy before many yeah. times when he talks about, okay, we're talking about these abstract ideas. How do we make sense of this? And he says, well, basically imagine, you know, if you lived on a piece of paper, you were mm-hmm. two dimensional and then a three dimensional ball went through the paper, yeah. right? It would be on a higher dimension. So you couldn't comprehend it, mm-hmm. but you could see <clears throat> the effect of it, or you could at least, you could get accurate knowledge 
of three dimensions without exhaustive knowledge. Yeah. And I think that's what he's talking about here with the Trinity. We, we can know something about God. It's not, it's not as though we go, this Trinity business is so complicated that we can't know anything about God. We can't say anything true about God. Well, that doesn't follow. You can say something true about it, mm -hmm. about God, while also maintaining the mystery of, we know this is true, but we don't know the exhaustive truth. We don't know all that's true about God. Yeah. But we do know things that are true for, for, for the purposes of us understanding who God is accurately. Yeah, the, uh, the dimensions thing is like, it's, it's super abstract. And I'm still not sure that, like the, that it works as an analogy. And he, he, I think he concedes this, that it's not a perfect analogy. But it, right. is, it is like, so he says you, you can have a line that's one dimension. Then you can have a square that's two dimensions. And when you draw a cube on a piece of paper, that's still two dimensions, but you're trying to like replicate three dimensions. Right. So, so when we try to talk about the Trinity, what we're doing is trying to replicate a cube on a two dimensional plane. Right. And so that's why it's going to be like imperfect. It's not going to get at the actual thing. But his point there is that the fact that cubes do exist means that you can have uh, multiple dimensions to the same thing. And so the Trinity is kind of that. Like if we can accept that there can be multiple dimensions when we talk about space, then we can sort of use that to help us understand a little bit of the Trinity and then in turn use that to help us understand how souls can be united to God. Well, he seems to be talking about the idea of analogy. Yeah. That we can make mm -hmm. analogies to God. Right. And analogies are things where you take two things. One is like the other without being exactly like the other. Right. But there's enough of a relationship of commonality that you can speak in terms of another with that with the analogy. Exactly. That, that yeah. makes any sense. Yeah. Uh, he uses another analogy <laughs> about a simple Christian who kneels down to say his prayer, right? Uh, he's trying to get in touch with God, but if he's a Christian, he knows that what is prompting him to pray is also God. God, so to speak, inside of him. Hmm. And and I guess he's trying to say how God, this, this makes God a three-personal being in that the spirit works in us. To, yeah, yeah. And then he's, he, later on, he says, it's like the spirit is behind us and within us. Mm -hmm. Christ is beside us praying and, and the father's in front of us who we pray to. Right. Um, I guess I, that, that to me, I'm still kind of like, what's, I guess he's just trying to show what that means to yeah. be part of the life of God. Yeah. He, I think, so here it is, it is part of the most abstract part of mere Christianity. And Lewis talks about this in the next chapter, actually. He says, Sometimes you just skip over a chapter in a book because it's too heady. And, you know, this is where Lewis gets pretty heady. And then he talks about God and time. He does later, yeah. Uh, which is, yeah, I know it's interesting stuff. But it's it's hilarious when you think about Lewis was delivering these talks on public radio during World War II. I know, right? And he's talking about God and time. But he, he transitioned a little bit to talk about um, theology as experiential science. And so he, he sets up in the first part there all of the abstract stuff about the dimensions and the Trinity and our inability to understand God. And then he says, like you were saying with the prayer, uh, God invites us to experience the Trinity. And there's a kind of knowledge that we can get of God experientially. It's a science where we have to immerse ourselves in the thing that we're studying in order to come away with a better grasp of it. So I, I for all, all of the square, all of the cubes that I draw on a piece of paper, uh, it's not going to give me the same familiarity with a cube as if I went and picked up a Rubik's cube and, and, and felt it and, and saw it. So prayer and living in the church gives us an experience of the Trinity 
that helps us make sense of the relations between the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, moving us to pray through the Son to the Father. And, and so there it's, it's like a lived Trinity actually in our lives. So just to recap, because this is a lot of material. Yeah. Lewis is trying to make sense of how we understand God, not just as a personal being, mm-hmm. someone we can have a relationship with, but as a three personal being, right. as a trinity. Mm-hmm. And he's basically saying that we can't fully grasp that, but we can make an analogy to it. Yep. Just like people, just like on a two-dimensional piece of paper, you can draw a three-dimensional shape that's mm-hmm. still two-dimensional, yep. but it's it's representing three dimensions yeah, in the yeah. way you draw it. Mm-hmm. And we can speak about God in that way where, where we can't fully grasp everything about God, but we can still say true things. We can make a 3D, a, a two-dimensional 3D drawing of God, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But we can also experience that reality every time that we pray because as we're praying, the, the tri-personal God is working in us, right? He's yes, w- yeah. prompting us to pray. He's the road through which we pray and he's the, the destination, the hmm. one we pray to. Yeah. Um, then he talks, I mean, so so one thing that's that falls out of that is that because God is so radically mysterious and bizarre and, and, and totally transcendent in his nature, it's impossible for humans to know God unless God initiates. Yeah. And we've made this point several times on the podcast before, but Lewis says, when you come to knowing God, the initiative lies on his side. If he does not show himself, nothing you can do will enable you to find him. And in fact, he shows much more of himself to some people than to others, not because he has favorites, but because it's impossible for him to show himself to a man whose whole mind and character are in the wrong condition. And we'll, we'll talk about the, the morality clarity stuff, but this idea that... Uh, so we, we, we like to talk about natural theology and apologetics and all this stuff. And Lewis's point here is that God is so radically different and, and beyond the reach of our minds that we can't know anything about God unless he gives us that knowledge. So all knowledge of God that we have is knowledge that God has gifted us with. It's grace. And that falls out of the, the Trinity. Like the Trinity is not something that humans would have just naturally come up with. It's not a natural religion. It's bizarre and difficult and, you know, borderline contradictory, really, really difficult to, to get our minds around. And so you think of that, and Lewis says in a couple different places, this is not the kind of doctrine that humans would have come up with because it's so difficult to wrap our minds around. And so there you have this argument for God has to be the initiator of revelation for us to grasp him. And Christianity's doctrine of the Trinity is a really good piece of evidence that people didn't just sit around and make this stuff up. Sure. Yeah. Well, he he makes the point that just as sunlight, though it has no favorites, cannot be reflected in a dusty mirror as clearly as in a clean one. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is, you know, sun, it's not picking to be reflected in cleaner mirrors and dusty ones. It's simply the nature of mirrors. Dusty mirrors just don't reflect as much light. Yeah. And if you bring that as the analogy for God and people, it's like, well... God, sinners are those dusty mirrors. Right. They're not reflecting the glory of God. Mm-hmm. It's not because God is choosing not to. It's just that their sinful condition precludes them from doing that. Yep. Which then brings <clears throat> up the point of, well, then how do you clean that mirror? Mm-hmm. Well, God has to himself do that. Yeah. He's actually got to give you the eyes to see him. And I, and I think that that is 
interesting where conversion is a moral thing. Mm-hmm. It's a moral conversion. What's changing in your heart? Yeah. You're now wanting to obey the first command. Right. You know, to 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 love God, mm-hmm. right? And to love your neighbor. So when we talk about conversion, it is a moral revolution. It's a it's a moral restoration of your of your heart. Yeah. Yeah. Uh and it, it does bring to mind where, <clears throat> you know, if God is good, if he's goodness, if he's love, if he's purity and holiness, then your love for him will be connected to your love for those things yeah. because those things emanate from him. Right. So if you're somebody who doesn't love purity, doesn't love holiness, doesn't love God, then you're not yeah. going to find God to be beautiful or compelling. But if you begin to love those things, by the grace of God, you will be growing in your love for God himself because yeah. God is the source of all and those Your theological things. vision becomes clearer. Right. And he, and he makes the point. That's yeah. on the flip side. He says that is why horrible nations have horrible religions. <laughs> They've been looking at God through a dirty lens. Yeah. Right. And so not only does are they affected by their immorality, but their vision of God is affected. And so they essentially make an idol. Yeah. Right. They, mm-hmm. they create a God in their own image of their own. That's that's a projection of all of their twisted thoughts. <clears throat> I love that he so, so just right on that point, he says, in the sciences, we use telescopes and microscopes to study objects, and, and the instruments that we're using to study things are external to ourselves. Right. But if I have a if I have a broken microscope, it's I'm not gonna be able to see the bacteria or the whatever the virus in, in that same way. But with God, <clears throat> because theology is an experiential science. All of us, because of sin, are broken. And the instruments that we use to see and experience God are our bodies, ourselves. But because of sin, those instruments are broken. Our moral compass is off. Our ability to see God is broken. So what what it takes for us to be able to see God is God has to come and correct that inside us. And so Lewis is articulating here a doctrine of regeneration, that God has to, like you said, wipe the mirror clean in order for that reflection to come through, God has to repair the instrument of my body first so that I can see him. And it's in that process that I can have theological clarity. I can't do theology well, according to Lewis, if I am a sinner in rebellion against God, if my mind is hostile to God. And so what it takes to see God as he is, is God has to come in and fix me. And so there's, there's a correlation between the more that I sin, the more that I inhibit my ability to see and know God. So my theology becomes worse, the more my practice becomes worse. Well, isn't one of the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart for they they will see God, God, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So there is that connection. Yep. It's not saying that you have to be perfect in order to know God. In in fact, that's what he's talking about is a a hard-hearted sinfulness. Not, not Not the kind of contrition and poorness of spirit yeah, yeah. that God blesses, mm-hmm. you know, that the God dwells with the lowly and contrite in spirit. He dwells with those who recognize their sin and mourn over their, mourn over their sin. So he's not, it's not that he's looking for perfect people. He's looking for humble, repentant people, Yeah, right? Which is very different than somebody who just <clears throat> lives into their sin, right? you know, because that, that, that we, so we don't want, we want to, we want to stir away from any kind of like works righteousness kind of thing. Absolutely. But there is a correlation between your moral life and your, and your understanding and knowledge of God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, what fellowship does darkness have with light? 
And in, you know? in scripture, we see God giving people over to their own desires and their own sins as a kind of judgment as well. Right. And a kind of like final, um, you know, stamp of, well, you, you, your sin has prevented you from seeing me and I'm just going to complete that process right. there. Right. right. I'm going to so let you go, I'm let you reach go that the way. ends right. that you want. Yeah. Yeah. With Pharaoh and all these people. Yep. Well, What's fascinating too is he says the only really adequate instrument for learning about God is the whole Christian community. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now he could have been like, what well, is the Bible? And I'm sure he would agree with that. Yeah. But, but I think he's getting in something else here. Uh, because this goes along with him talking about how knowing God is, is an experimental thing, meaning mm -hmm. not, you know, not that we're testing God, but that, that it's, it's, an, it's a reality to be lived into. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, so this is something that is meant to happen in <clears throat> the church, Christian community, right? Christian brotherhood is the technical equipment for this science, the mm. laboratory outfit, yeah. right? Praying together, loving each other. This is how we actually live into the life that God has given us in Christ. Yeah. Like how do you, how do you practically live out what it means to be un unified with Christ? Like what does that mean, right? Is this some mystical thing? No, being united to Christ is living out the truth, obeying the word of God mm -hmm. among the brotherhood. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And um, I mean, it's, it's, it's like Lewis, Lewis ties all of this together and gives us a kind of doctrine of perseverance of the saints right, as well. Right. So, so he says that once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Right. So, so, so we started off talking about the, the Trinity and how the Trinity explains our ability to be united to God without being erased. And then we see the practical import of that. And we see regeneration, how that we need regeneration before we can have revelation. And then also we have the doctrine of perseverance of the saints that once we're united to God, <clears throat> you have life forever. Right. Like, because that is an act of God, because right. God regenerates the individual. God gives knowledge of himself. And that comes through a process of being united to God. God does not die. And so right. if you are in God, then you are preserved and saved forever. Right. And it's just, I, I'd never noticed that before in Lewis, but you do get that really clearly. Well, it's it's like, I think John McArthur said this, where he was like, if, if I could lose my salvation, I would. <laughs> right. And it is, it's the security. Yeah. It's, a, it's a sovereign act of God that mm -hmm. we are saved. Yeah. Um, but again, and, and this, you know, like you were saying, God perseveres us, mm -hmm. right? It's his power that keeps us going. Yeah. Well, if you jump over to book uh, four or part four, where he talks about, he calls it the good infection. Yeah. <laughs> he talks about how God's salvation mm -hmm. is, and we mentioned this, God's salvation is bringing us into the life of God, mm -hmm. right? But then he brings it into the doctrine of the Trinity because he talks about how uh, the father begets the son. Now this language of begetting is important and yeah. he makes the point, it's not making, right? right? Mm -hmm. So why do we say the father begets the son? Well, we wanna make the point, and, and the church tradition wants to make the point that the son is of the same substance as the father, right? right? So a, an earthly son is the same stuff as his father. Yep. He, he comes from his body, mm -hmm. right? So there's, there's a connection there. So. We want to see that between the father and the son. They both are the one true God. Yeah. But the problem is that analogy breaks down because sons 
come after their father. Right. So there's a time when the son wasn't in existence. Mm -hmm. Well, you can't say that about Jesus, about the son, without making him a lesser God or a created being, which wouldn't make him not God. Right. So he call, so Lewis points this where he says, this begetting is an eternal begetting, mm -hmm. right? And then he uses that illustration yeah. <laughs> about, uh, uh, what is it? The, the surface books. of a table. Or the two books on it on a table. Yeah. Well, you have a good, you do a good job of explaining the, this. So you can have you can imagine one book on top of another, and you can imagine those two books like that from all of eternity. One book is supporting the other book. Now imagine that like it's not a temporal like it wasn't like one book was there and then the next book, but they were just eternally together. One book supporting the other book. There you can have a kind of causation that's not temporal. And that's all Lewis is trying to say. You can have something supporting or giving life to something else that's not temporal, that doesn't require one to have come before the other thing. So when we talk about the father begetting the son, it's that first book supporting the second book from all eternity. But it's just a relationship of support, which the church is called the eternal generation right. of the son. I know it's, it's technical, but we talked about this in the last episode. There it's just the the son is begotten but not made because we talked about the making was when I make something, I make something that's different from what I am. But when I beget, I beget something that's the same sort of thing. Right. Yeah. So those two books, the book on top is being supported by the book on the bottom. Mm -hmm. But the book on the bottom is not being supported by the book on the top. Right. So there's a difference in relation. Mm-hmm. But you wouldn't That's how be we know saying, one's the father, one's, yeah. Right, but you yeah. wouldn't be saying the bottom book was causing or creating the second book or right, anything right. like that. Yeah, yeah. And so basically, Lewis is doing what the church has been doing for generations. Yeah. Trying to make sense of the biblical language. Mm -hmm. God reveals himself as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right. Well, how can God have a son? Well, the son has to mean something. Right. And so <clears> this <throat> language of begetting is how you can legitimately have somebody be a son Right, the second person of the Trinity finds his source from the Father, mm -hmm. without the second person being created by the Father. Right, and that's the idea of eternal generation, or what Lewis is calling begetting. Yes, um, and he uses a couple other analogies, but uh, he talks about um, how the sun is streaming forth from the Father, like light from a lamp, or heat from a fire, or thoughts from a mind. And he is a self-expression of the Father, what the Father has to say. And there was never a time when he was not saying it, right? Uh, but then he, he actually picks up on this. He goes, even with those illustrations, right? The Father's a light, the Son is a lamp. Yes. I'm sorry, the, the, the <clears throat> Son is the light yeah. and the Father's a lamp. Or the Father's the fire and the Son is heat. Or yeah. the Father <clears throat> is the mind and the Son is light. They still, those, they're still inadequate. Those are yeah. two different things. Thoughts yeah. aren't minds, right. lights aren't lamps, right? They're two different things. And he's going, okay, so... It's actually not the perfect analogy. Yeah. Right. And and then he brings it back and he goes, This is why we stick with the words of the Bible. Yeah. You yeah. know, and, and and Lewis <clears throat> is very modest where he's saying, I am just trying to illuminate certain ways of understanding aspects of how the Trinity works, mm -hmm. while also recognizing that we have to stick to the Bible. And there are things in the Bible that don't fully we can't fully grasp. Because yeah. what are we? We're yeah. two-dimensional people trying to draw a cube. Mm -hmm. Right? We can only make basic representations, but God surpasses those. Yeah. Right? Then Lewis says like, okay, so all of this is really abstract. Where's the practical stuff? But he does get to something practical. He does. And this is where like, it, it, it's a really cool argument, but essentially we say God is love. 
okay? But God is love. Okay, what, what, you could say, what does God love? Who does God love? He loves people. He loves creation. Okay, that's true. But what about, I mean, before there was creation, God existed for all eternity. Uh, God didn't have to create the world to love something or someone. He's eternally loving. He is loving in his nature. But how can that be true uh, if you just have a singular conception of God as just one person? Right. right? Who was God loving when there was no one else? Exactly. So you need to have the Trinity to explain how God can be loving in his nature, how God can be essentially loving. The Father loves the Son, loves them, and, and the loves that are given there are loves from one person to another. Right. So Lewis talks about how love has always some other person as the object. Right. And so if God is just one person, then you don't have love as being this outward expression of, you know, union, right? There's no right. union to be had there. There's an, there's an other that, that God is loving, even yeah. though it's God, like, and that's the thing, God, in a sense, is God loving himself? Well, I mean, the father is, is loving the son, yes. the son's loving the father, and mm-hmm. the father loves the spirit. And, yes. and the, all the members of the Trinity love one another. Right. And there really is an other to love in that situation yeah. without saying that there are three gods. Right. How does that work? It's, Lewis it's, yeah. is being, you know, we don't know. <laughs> it's difficult, but But yeah. that is important because it teaches us that if God's essentially love, and he's always been loved, that he always will be love. Mm. And that gives us assurance. So if he brings us into his life, it's not as though he's learning to love or that he could somehow change his mind. God never changes. So that love that he has for the son, that pureness of love, we are now brought into that yep. by our conversion and our mm-hmm. salvation, right? And and that is, um, that, that, that is why everything that we see in the gospel is there. Mm-hmm. The father sends the son. The son dies for us. The spirit indwells us. All of these are acts of self-giving. Yeah. And so at the heart of the gospel is this self-giving God. Mm. And if we're to image him, what does that mean we're supposed to be like? We're supposed to be self-giving. Or another way to put that is we're supposed to love. Yeah. And yeah. love is giving of oneself for the good of another. And ultimately, this Lewis says this is the, the fundamental difference between Christianity and other religions. That So I'm going to quote here. In Christianity, God is not a static thing, not even a person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you won't think me irreverent, a kind almost, of dance. Almost. He says a <laughs> right, kind of dance. Right, right. That the union between the Father and the Son is such a live, concrete thing that this union itself is also a person. And there he's talking about that's what the right, Holy Spirit right. is, right? Um, so the Trinity is an activity. It's not a singular person. And if you like recall when we like talked about Aquinas and this idea that God is pure actuality. Everything that exists is a noun, is a table, is a Brian, is a tree. Right. God isn't a thing among a class of things. God is being. When, when, when Moses asks God, who are you? He says, I am who I am. I, like, my being is my existing. God right. is a verb. God is an activity. And so you get that in the Trinity. Like the Trinity is just an, essentially an activity, a dance. A, well, what does that mean that he's a, he's not a noun? Does that mean because a person is a noun, right? So so or each, being is a noun. Yeah. So here we're going to be like God as one being is not a thing. God is not like an object. Right. God is existence itself. Right. God is like it. Our language sort of breaks down here, but one way to put it is that everything that exists 
is a noun. It's a singular thing. God is a verb. God is an activity. He is being itself. And that's, you know, if you want oh, to like, think about the, the classical tradition of God isn't like, j- just think of the Moses thing. I am who I am. Like right. there I'm, God is ising. God is aming. So it's God like is every being. person is a person who is, who could exist who or is could drawing, not exist. Who is drawing from the existence bank yes, right. to live. Yeah. But God doesn't draw from the existence bank. He, he is, is the bank. Yeah. Right. For everything that is, it could not have been. You could not have been. Right. Tables could not have been. Right. But for God, that's not, that doesn't make any sense. God that's wasn't incoherent. a thing. Oh, I see. He wasn't a thing. And then he attached to himself this existence. thing called existence. Right. Right. Yeah. Unicorns are like things in our minds that we could, God could attach existence to a unicorn thought and make it real. Right. But God, like God is his existence. Like they're right. just, you they're could just imagine a unicorn. Right. What doesn't exist yet mm-hmm. until you add to it the attribute of existence. Right. And now that unicorn becomes real. Exactly. But God isn't, didn't, wasn't at one point a unicorn that somebody else, <laughs> <laughs> this is getting crazy, that somebody else attached existence to to make him real. Yes. Talk okay. about late night philosophy. Or, yeah, or God doesn't have potential to become something. Exactly. Like, like, like a child has a potential mm-hmm. to become an adult. Yes. But God is not waiting for the next stage of godness. Mm-hmm. He simply is pure fullness that, of, yeah. of, of, I don't know. what. what That's actually, what I meant by the noun. Okay. Like everything that is has potential to become something else. Right. God doesn't have potential to become anything. He just is fully actualized. Right. Which is that, it's like it's mind Whoa. blowing. Talk about like you super think that's heady. air you're breathing, <laughs> man. Uh, that, yeah. was good, that was some good stuff. Though. That was a lot. I'm trying to think like there's so so there's that last just to just to kind of tie things up here. Um, Lewis says so he wants to tie this back into the divine life, right? And so how do we make this practical? So uh, we shall be sharing in a life talking about the life of God which was begotten, not made. So the importance of being united to Christ, that God's life that he gives us is the life that he gives to the son. And that life is begotten, not made, which has always existed, will always exist. Christ is the son of God. If we share in this kind of life, we shall also be sons of God. We shall love the father as he does and the Holy Ghost will arise in us. He came into this world, became a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life that he has, by this is what I call a good infection. <laughs> Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. So this idea of a good infection, that, that Jesus is the divine life and the goal is to spread that to people, is to give that to humanity. And it's, a, it's, a, it's the opposite of a COVID transmission. It's a good transmission. Wow. I know, I just went there. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's a good... It's a life-giving infection. God came and became a man so that he can give that divine life to us. And as a result, we can live forever. We can be bound up in the life of God. And our hard hearts are like a vaccination <laughs> that creates antibodies to the grace of God. I, wait, antibodies to the grace of God? That would mean that it would fight it off. Right. That's our sin. Is the fact, if Christ's grace is the infection. Uh-huh then our sin is like a vaccine that- I don't think pre- you know how vaccines work. The, don't they build antibodies to fight off infections? They do, but who's giving you the vaccine? I'm saying this vaccines are- Sin? Sin. But that would mean that we're, we're healthy, but then we're getting a vaccination of sin. For the fall. Oh, I see. So you're saying Adam got- There you go. Man, that was- 
Forget that analogy. Yeah, forget that analogy. <laughs> Everything else was was pretty good, but yeah, yeah. This is a. I'll just I'll blame it on the fact that it's twelve thirty p.m. Well, thank you guys for listening, and uh, hopefully this was a helpful discussion for you. We trust that it was. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Leave a good review. Let your friends know all about it, and uh, buy Mere Christianity. Read through it. It'll it'll really help you, and uh, you can use this as a resource to help you understand and go a little deeper in some of the things that Lewis is talking about. But treasure trove of great theological truths and uh, we're going to keep digging into it so we will catch you guys next time